Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, Faith That Works, in the book of James today, with a message entitled, Prayer and Healing. So turning your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Reading a very intriguing passage of Scripture, James 5, 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I have an experience that goes years back to the days when I was a student in seminary in Southern California. A good friend and classmate had developed a heart murmur. As many of you know, heart murmurs can be a symptom of heart disease. And as he had never had a heart murmur before, there was, there was a great deal of concern. Pat asked for some of his fellow students to pray for him, and, and we did. And then something happened to me. I was standing at the outside of the circle, and, and yet I had this profound sense that, that I should walk into the circle and pray for him. But there were many others surrounding him, and I didn't want to disrupt their prayer, so I just stood at the outside and, and listened and agreed as others prayed and nothing changed. Pat's heart murmur remained. But I knew Pat, and I never doubted that, that he remained confident in God's sovereign care for him. But on a second occasion, Pat asked for prayer again. And again, I was on the outside of the circle, and again, I, I had this overwhelming sense that God was calling me to pray for him, and I didn't know what to think, whether I was just being presumptuous. But just in case this was really from God, I, I pushed my way into the middle. I put my hands on Pat's heart, and I said words that surprised me. You see, I had planned to simply pray a very similar prayer to others. Instead, I found myself saying, Pat, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And he literally jumped back and he said, I felt something like electricity just pass through me. And, and then he paused and he whispered, I think I've just been healed. And that week he went to the doctor and the heart murmur had completely disappeared and it never came back. I've had time to think about that encounter now for years. At times in my younger years, I, I foolishly tried to repeat that experience, but each attempt was strained, and God did not honor my attempts to repeat that which had been initiated by Him. Nothing like that has ever occurred to me again. Well, that's not to say that I've not been a part of a team that has prayed for people and seen them healed. I have. I remember on one occasion uh, leading a team to pray for a man with leukemia, he was awaiting a bone marrow transplant, and we anointed him with oil, and we prayed, and, and he went home. And later he told me that that very night he had a dream in which it appeared as if the hand of God burst a balloon over him, and he felt drenched, and he immediately awoke, and he realized, well, he actually wasn't wet after all. It had been a dream, but he did feel that God had just demonstrated that he had poured out his healing on him. And he went back to the doctor, and he never received cancer treatments again. He was cancer-free for over 25 years, perhaps more. I remember on one incident, anointing a brother with oil. He was a professional writer, and he was going blind. He could barely see. 
And we prayed earnestly for his healing. And then that very night after we had prayed, as he sat in his living room, he suddenly realized he could see. I've had more than one occasion that I've witnessed that God can and does heal miraculously. But the incident with Pat was special in some way. I had such a sense of the calling of God. The the effects were so instant. And the more I think about it, for me, it was just God's way of telling me how, how very near he was at hand and how in an act of great mercy and kindness had allowed me to be a part of that kind of, of activity. See, and I don't wish to convey that miraculous healing is God's normal pattern in our lives because, in fact, it's not. And we've been studying James, and as we have recalled, James started with an invitation. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. See, he doesn't say, when you encounter trials of various kinds, take authority over those trials in the name of Jesus and cast them back to the pit of hell where they came from. No, no, he says, count it all joy. And furthermore, in the earlier part of this chapter, James encourages us to be patient in our sufferings, enduring them with patience while we await the coming of the Lord. See, that means there are many sufferings which will not be taken away in this life. We remember that Paul himself had a thorn in his flesh and that on three occasions, he asked God to remove it from him. And what did God say? 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Indeed, Paul says that the reason God did not remove the thorn was to keep him from becoming too conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given to him. Now, it does absolutely no good to argue that if this were an illness or if this were a persistent eye problem or if this was, you know, persecution, As we've already seen in the beginning of James, trials of many kinds, they are all in God's toolbox to nurture and grow our faith, to create perseverance in the lives of believers. We should go through trials, whatever they are, bearing in our hearts the eternal promises of God. Hence, it seems to me that a teaching of miracles and healing should not cancel out a doctrine of God's providence. The doctrine of providence teaches us that that God is continually involved at every moment, at all points, with the whole of creation. He governs over every detail of his creation, which includes our lives and directs all things to serve his purposes and our long-term eternal good. So even when you and I don't see a miracle, we're still seeing God's providential hand in every detail of our lives We need to rest in great assurance that God is directing every single event in our lives, and that includes our healings and our thorns. I think that's why James starts as he does in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, the word for suffering is a wider term than is the term sickness. Suffering can include sickness, but but it really refers to any trial that we go through. And the term cheerful is also a wide-ranging term. It refers to any situation that causes us to be encouraged. J.A. Motcher says of this verse, Here then, in two words, are all of life's experiences, and each of them in turn can so easily be the occasion of spiritual upset. That's because trials can lead us to question God's goodness. And cheerful times, well, that can lead us to be complacent and forget God. That's why whether we're suffering 
or whether we're cheerful, we need to pray and we need to praise. There are many temptations that come to us in either one of those two states. In both suffering and in pleasure, we need to seek the grace of God. We, we need to recognize that the great goal of life is not to be pain-free, but to find our lives in Christ, to, to be united with him, to, to glorify him, to, to take delight in him, whether in good times or in hard times. So before getting into the details, James wants to paint for us a formula in which God has not forgotten. Pray and sing, he says. Paul commends the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18. There he says, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And James simply takes Paul's all circumstances and breaks those circumstances down to times of suffering and times of cheer. But the formula remains the same. There's a basic principle. Prayer and praise is for all of life. It's for all of life because it's needed in all of life. All situations in life present us with both wonderful opportunities to grow in Christ, but they also come with temptations that would subvert us. Blessed is the man or woman who sees all of life in those terms. And so at the risk of belaboring that point, this is the basic principle that flows through this passage. Prayer and praise is for life. Those two elements, if you will, form a basic Christian discipline. Daniel Doriani said it well, through prayer we hallow every pleasure and sanctify every pain. Nothing in life is outside of our calling to pray and sing. Every occasion in life gives rise to those two impulses. In all our experiences in life, in, in pain and in delight, we encounter the God who loves us. We see him in sorrow and we see him in pleasure. Our responses are according to our circumstances, but we bring both to God. When our eyes are flooded with tears, we pray. When our heart overflows with delight, we sing. But both are to God. He is the source of both experiences. That's the basic principle. And from that general principle, James will now move to a specific instance of one of those. And it is to this, on the issue of sickness and suffering, that James now gives directives to his church. In our society, the topic of money is often regarded as taboo. However, God in His Word certainly doesn't keep quiet on the matter, and He's provided us with an abundance of financial direction. On that note, we're thrilled to offer you our newest resource, a short booklet called 10 Questions About Money Matters, based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money. This booklet addresses 10 common money-related concerns from a biblical perspective, some insight to help better bring glory to God with our resources. Because we feel this topic is so important to your spiritual walk, we want to offer you this resource free for the whole month of August. So simply request your copy today, or if you'd like to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Verse 14 begins with a question. Is anyone among you sick? And when you first read this passage, it seems really quite straightforward. What can be difficult about this passage? And yet, 
a storm of controversy has overshadowed James' simple teaching at the end of his book. You know, for Roman Catholics, James 5.14 has become the justification for the practice of the sacrament of the last rites. And so the sickness is here seen as the sickness unto death, and the raising up has to do with the resurrection. The oil is the sacrament of grace, which ushers one from one world to the next. And it's interesting. I, I suspect that many of my listeners have never heard of that before. But there are other ways of seeing this as well. There are those who are called cessationists, and cessationists believe, among other things, that the, the era of miracles and signs have ceased when the scriptures were completed. Now we have the ultimate sign, that is, the scripture, and, and for that reason and for others, Cessationists argue that the day of miraculous healings have come to an end. So they argue that God's purposes are served by having miracles for a period of time, but those times have ceased. And so among cessationists, it's common to hear the word sick in verse 14 is translated as weak or as weary. So say these Bible teachers, James is only referring to those who are weary in their sufferings. Is anyone so weary in their suffering that they're in danger of forgetting how God uses suffering to build perseverance? And so they argue that all that James promises is that believers will be encouraged but, but not healed. They'll be healed of their double-mindedness and given a firm standing for understanding God's tests. And then there are those teachers who are of the word faith movement who use this passage to say that James promises in verse 15 that the prayer of faith will always heal every person who believes. So, if a person is not healed after doing what James said that they should do, the answer must be a lack of faith, either on the part of the, of the sick person or on the part of the elders who come to pray. Or perhaps it's even sin in their lives. But for them, faith and healing always go together. You know, such radically different ways of reading this one verse. But I get a sneaking suspicion that when I hear people teaching on this verse in these different ways, that what I'm really hearing is called eisegesis. That is, often it's very easy for us to decide in advance what we believe, and then we read the text to justify our already held beliefs. Now, that's a temptation for all of us. We want the Bible to say what we believe rather than to let the Bible explain truth to us so that it informs what we believe. So the best way, no, the only way to read the Bible is to read a verse in context, understanding it against the whole of what's being said. So let's step back for a moment and, and notice how this passage beautifully ends the book of James. We've noticed that suffering is a part of this book from beginning to end. We've also noticed that James wants to combine both faith and works or faith and obedience. James will not tolerate a form of Christian faith that says it believes, yet is disobedient to the word, especially when it comes to how we use our tongues, how we treat the poor, how we respond to worldly temptations and the like. And then James ends the book the way he started, by taking us back to the kinds of trials that he says are going to strengthen our faith, a kind of faith that perseveres in faithfulness to Christ all the way to the end until Christ returns or to be patient. You know, in many ways, you might think that verse 12 should end the book. You know, that verse said, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
You know, in essence, we might argue that that verse completes the book. I mean, after all, when, when James spoke of the double-minded man, the one who's tossed by every wind, he ends with a command, let your yes be yes, stop vacillating. And then when he's condemning the slanderous use of the tongue, verse 12 seems to end that practice as well. And when in chapter 2, James told us that faith must be combined with works, well, verse 12 calls us to obedience to Christ. After all, it was, it was Jesus who taught us to act this way. See, in a wonderful way, James 5.12 ends this very direct and challenging book, but James is not done. Something has been left unmentioned. That matter is the matter of God's grace. Remember James 4, verse 6? But he gives more grace. Yet James makes pointed demands on believers' lives. But James also adds, God gives more grace. Hence, says James, God does enter into our sufferings. He is our burden bearer. This is his grace. God lifts the yoke. God lightens our load. God heals. That when temptation to fail is so great, he in grace will intervene. So from the general principle that we should pray and worship in every situation, whether in sickness or in pleasure, James now, like a good pastor, makes very specific application. For James, the point of application has to do with sickness and the thing we all do when we're sick. We pray. What do we pray for? Well, we pray the same thing that Paul prayed. Oh, Lord, take this thorn from me. So James talks specifically regarding physical healing. Look again at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's the first and obvious question. I mean, why call the elders at all? And, and who are the elders? And why can't everyone pray? You know, in short, the elders are the leaders of the local church who've been appointed to preach and teach the word to disciple God's people. And in answer to the question of whether anyone can pray for those who are sick, well, of course anyone can. But remember, James is writing to the church. And the New Testament, the term elders, always refers to the leaders of the local church. Remember that the first church ever, you know, the one in Jerusalem, was led by the apostles, but they had elders who served under the direction of the apostles. And when the churches were planted in New Testament times, every single church was led by a community of not one, but multiple elders. There are no exceptions to that practice. Never one senior pastor alone who leads the church, always a company of elders, always a company of teachers of the Word of God. No, the elders are not the church board or the ones who make budget decisions. The elders are the teachers of the Word entrusted with discipling God's people, correcting theological errors, correcting the erring, helping people to live within the truth of the apostolic teaching, encouraging them in their tribulations. Again, what are the elders to do? Well, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, elders are given two specific tasks. They are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So, there are two functions for elders. They exercise oversight, and that refers to giving leadership. They shepherd the flock, that refers to pastoral care. A shepherd is a pastor leader. All elders are to be pastoral, teaching people, correcting errors, winning people to Christ, discipling people, involved in healing people wherever they have wounds. That's why it's natural to call for the elders when you're sick. They are the shepherds that God has put over your spiritual care. 
So don't you see, that's the context. The very people who are involved in your spiritual maturity are the very people you call when you're faced with sickness. So let's say that you're going through a difficult time. You're going through a sickness and you're asking, how do I persevere? Or you might be asking, have I been sinning? Is this why I'm sick? Or you might be asking, will God heal me? Or you might be asking, does God even care? And so the elders come and they provide the answers. So that's why the elders are called. You call the elders because you want more than your simple healing. You want to be instructed because you need to be reminded that there's nothing in your life that's not a part of God's providential plan for you. Whether it be in pleasure or in pain, you want to know what Christ is teaching you. Now, of course, as we're going to see tomorrow, this is but the beginning of this passage. The passage will then teach us that the person who is prayed for will be raised up, and we're going to need to consider what that means. But for now, understand this. Physical healing and your spiritual life are never to be divorced from one another. God doesn't just care about whether or not you're sick. God cares about every single aspect of your life. On the other hand, when you're sick, don't take that as some aspect outside of God's discipleship for you. All of life is to be lived under his plan, and that's why James has something to say to believers who are struggling with sickness. God will bring grace into the midst of your illnesses. John, I want to go back to the very beginning of your message because I think there might be some out there that are listening that are a little bit shocked by your experiences of healing. (laughs) Yeah, and and Ben, it's it's an interesting thing because I do get that from people, and and I have to express my own shock. Uh, And my, my expression of shock is that I am shocked that people are shocked, Ben, because I find so many examples of healing in Scripture And uh, why should it surprise us that God supernaturally intervenes and that God provides grace for us in ways that overwhelm us? Um, I would think, Ben, that we should anticipate this, Um, that I'm not telling God what he must do, but I'm going to him with my request. And because I know that God is so gracious and treats me in a way that is much better than my sins deserve, I find that he sometimes overwhelms me in greater ways than I can possibly imagine. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow for the final message in our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to the mission of providing excellence in Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible. Both Bible teaching and engagement programs are available online through video, print, radio, podcast, mobile app, and CD. It's our prayer that anyone who tunes in will discover encouragement for their spiritual journey and insight for living through the study of the Bible. All of these resources are made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. It's your generous donations that allow the mission to be accomplished. So thank you for all you do. And remember that if you want to receive our monthly gift this month, Dr. John's new booklet, 10 Questions About Money Matters, all you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And thanks again for your generous support.